Hello, I'm Zev Newirth, and welcome to Creating New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their efforts to advance customer-oriented, value-based healthcare. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. Folks, our focus today is on what I consider to be one of the most critical challenges and one of the most significant opportunities we have in healthcare today. I would go so far as to say that what we're going to be talking about is the holy grail of healthcare and actually of health. Not to keep you in any suspense, what I'm talking about is our own behaviors, both healthful and unhealthful behaviors. We know from the literature that over 50% of the impact that we have on our own morbidity and mortality is due to people's behavior, our own behavior, healthy habits such as physical activity, nutrition, taking medications, appropriate medications uh, for acute and chronic disease, following up appropriately on treatment, preventive measures such as cancer screenings, and so on, as well as uh, avoiding unhealthful behaviors and unhealthful substances and situations. Now, we all know that this is a tough nut to crack. In fact, it probably is the toughest nut to crack. What you may not realize is that this is not just something that impacts your own health, your family's health, your community's health, as well as the health of populations. It actually has tremendous financial implications. We could spend quite a bit of time talking about the data that's been generated about this, but just as one brief example, the World Health Organization has uh, predicted and estimated the cost of chronic disease management across the globe, across the world, is going to be greater than 50% of the world gross product. That means that literally over 50% of all the revenue that is generated will be spent solely on managing the uh, escalation of chronic disease, both in this country and across the globe. And again, this is just one of many pieces of information pointing to the tremendous profound impact that chronic disease, our own behaviors, has not just on our health, but also our financial well-being individually in this country and across the globe. What's exciting and very, very hopeful is that there is something we have that actually can address this in a meaningful way. And uh, one of the most exciting and impactful areas uh, of research and application going on right now in behavior change is a field called behavioral economics. This is the science of how people make decisions and take action. It's a combination of uh, psychology, behavioralism, microeconomics, a bunch of other social sciences and analytics all rolled into one. And we are so fortunate today to have on our program one of the most highly recognized, highly published uh, thought leaders uh, in this field, Dr. Kevin Volpe. Uh, Dr. Volpe is the founding director of the University of Pennsylvania Leonard David Institute, the Center for Health Incentives and Behavioral Economics, also called CHIBE or the CHIBE Center. This center is uh, only one of two NIH-funded centers on behavioral economics and health in the United States. Um, it's a 
powerhouse. Uh, for those of you who uh, have any background in research, I know you'll appreciate this. In, in, in the 10 years that Chibe has been around and Dr. Kevin Bolp has, uh, has been leading it, uh, founded it and been leading it, they've published over 3,000 studies in uh, over 300 peer-reviewed journals with over 60,000 citations. It's just incredible. In fact, just last year in 2017, uh, the Center for Health Incentives and Behavioral Economics, Chibe, published nearly 350 peer-reviewed articles. That's just in one year. Uh, Dr. Kevin Volpe is uh, also the Founders President's Distinguished Professor and Vice Chief for Health Policy in the Department of Medical Ethics and Policy at the Perelman School of Medicine at UPenn. And he's a Professor of Healthcare Management at the Wharton School of Business uh, at UPenn. His research uh, is on the impact of financial and organizational incentives on health behavior and health outcomes. It's been, uh, he and his work has, have, and his colleagues' work have been recognized with with dozens and dozens of prestigious awards. I'm, I'm not going to waste any time going into them. I just want to share with you, he is also an elected member of several honorary societies, including the prestigious uh, Institute of Medicine of the National Academy of Sciences. On a more personal note, uh, I uh, have to tell you, it's, it's been such a pleasure and a privilege for me to uh, actually have been um, a colleague and, and, and uh, in, in, in correspondence with Dr. Volpe for many years. I, I think probably the better part of 10 years that we've been corresponding and speaking, and, and it is, um, it, it's just remarkable to see what he has and his colleagues have accomplished in this domain of behavioral economics, how much they've contributed, and, and importantly, how much they've actually deployed and how much really wonderful change uh, you know, he's produced uh, both at UPenn across the country. And we're going to get into that uh, once we get to the interview. So actually, without further ado, uh, why don't we jump into the interview I conducted with Dr. Volp. So, so, Kevin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you, and thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm looking very much forward to talking with you. So, so Kevin, um, before we jump into some examples of the work you're doing and how you're applying behavioral economics to healthcare, could you just give us a very high-level thumbnail sketch of what behavioral economics is about, and in particular, what what major big-time problems in healthcare do you would you say that it's it's really kind of uh, really adept at, at solving for us? Well, so many of our listeners probably took an economics class in college or graduate school. And typically in those classes, people are taught about humans as rational expected utility maximizers. What that means is that in these classical views of human behavior, People weigh all the different possibilities that of, of things that can happen to them. They have a good sense of the probabilities that they might happen and have a clear sense of the utility or disutility of different outcomes. Uh, in that model, people then, through a process of backwards induction, figure out which choice path has the highest net present value. And what behavioral economists have mapped out are various ways in which that model is incomplete. Uh, in other words, people are boundedly rational. They're not very good at estimating probabilities. They tend to overweight the immediate costs and benefits of their action as opposed to the future consequences. People often make decisions based on how they feel as opposed to any deliberate cognitive process. We're very influenced by what people around us do, how choices are framed, 
the order of choices themselves. We're more likely to pick what's at the top of a list as opposed to something in the middle or at the bottom. Uh, we also make decisions a lot of times based on whether there's a pre-specified default. So all of these uh, different decision errors provide a much richer view, descriptive view of human behavior, but also have very useful normative implications for how we might design interventions. And there are a lot of opportunities to think about how behavioral economics can be applied to big problems in healthcare. I'll just say briefly that they can; the, these insights can be very helpful both in terms of patient behavior and physician behavior. Uh, and as you highlighted at the outset here, Zev, uh, both are incredibly important as we think about both improving the health of the population and about the ongoing shift to a health system that prioritizes value. Uh, a lot of this is about behavior change, and I think behavioral economics can play a big role there. And so, so you know, Dan Ariely, one of the, I think, psychology researchers from Duke in this field has written quite a bit about this. And he wrote a book called, I think it was called uh, Irrationally Rational, uh, where he, you know, he, he shows example after example of what you just described, which is that our decision making isn't as rational as we would hope it to be. And there are influencers that, um, you know, whether it's like you say, something that just happened has more weighting than something that might have happened a while back. And so, so is the idea that if you understand these levers that influence decision making, that you can then begin to use them uh, to, to help people make better decisions, both, as you were saying, doctors as well as patients? Is that the idea? Yeah, I think that's one of the key ideas. It's important to understand some of the challenges. If, if we're thinking about this from a healthcare provider perspective, it's important to understand some of the challenges our patients face. So... Another key principle in behavioral economics is that people have what are called time inconsistent preferences. And if you think about what underlies a lot of the challenges people face who struggle with various kinds of addictions, for example, or even simple things like food choice, uh, the same person might really swear, you know, I don't want to smoke ever again. I just ate all this ice cream. I don't want to keep doing this and really mean it, but then when they're craving uh, either food or hungry or they're bored at night or they're withdrawing from nicotine, then nothing as, as is important as, as satisfying that craving. And so there are lots of strategies people can use to make those uh, risks less likely. And I think there's, there's suggestions that can be useful to patients in the personal behavior realm but there's also, I think, a lot of important implications as we think about provider behavior and the kinds of things we might do to try to improve choice environments more broadly to make it easier for people to exercise healthy choices. Mm -hmm. And there's a term, and I'm blanking on it now, but in the behavioral economics world, you know, and I want to I want to put this in there because this is not about manipulation. Um, at least that's my understanding of the field as I've as I've read it. It's it's more it's a it's a sort of a libertarian persuasion. It's, it, it's like you say, there's, these are strategies to, to, to help people, you know, sort of carry out the things that otherwise, you know, they, they could or they would, you know, want to make. For instance, you know, one example that's not in healthcare is this whole issue of saving for retirement. And so the idea that, um, you know, uh, 401k plans, that it's very hard if, you, if left up to our own devices, the idea of having to every month go and take some money out of my paycheck and put it in a 401k account, even if I wanted to do that and it's in my best interest, 
I might use that money short term. That might be something I want to buy. And I'll say, oh, you know, I'll skip this month and I'll skip this month and I'll skip this month. And so, you know, behavioral economics is applying uh, strategies to actually sort of take that decision out of my hands. So I, I make the decision. It makes it easier for me to do the thing that I actually really want to do that's in my best interest for my future. Um, and so there are strategies of, you know, sort of, let's say, even making it automatic. So it gets withdrawn without my having to think about it. So, so is that, is that your sort of, you know, I, I don't know if you know that term. I forget. I don't know if it's libertarian paternalism, I think might be the term, but, but I get that sense of it. Yeah. No, that's, that's a very important concept to put out there up front. So the underlying ethos of a lot of behavioral economic interventions is libertarian paternalism. And the idea behind that is that this is not intended to be akin to a mandate or regulation or, or requirement that anybody do any do something in particular, but it's really about trying to make it easier for those who behave suboptimally to make uh, decisions that are consistent with their own long-term best interest while not constraining the choices of those who have strong preferences. So a classic example of this is the layout of a cafeteria. There's been lots of research that suggests that there's a prime position in a cafeteria. It's often in the middle of the cafeteria near the cashier. And people will tend to gravitate to food that's in the prime position. There's also no denying that somebody needs to decide what food goes where. So that person is the choice architect. And they could put the healthy food in the prime position. They could put the most profitable food in the prime position. Or they could do it at random. But no escaping, they have to decide. And this is a nice example of libertarian paternalism because you can see how if they put the salad in salad bar in the middle of the room, people will be more likely to choose salad. But if somebody has strong preferences and really wants the supersized burger and fries, nobody's taken it off the menu. We haven't taken it out of the cafeteria. We haven't changed the differential prices. We've just made it subtly more difficult for you to get it because now you have to walk to the back of the cafeteria. But it's, it's, there's no denying as well that this is paternalistic. Uh, and there are lots of interesting questions about uh, how desirable or how strong should these paternalistic interventions ideally be. And I think a lot depends on the setting. But the idea is to try to help people make better decisions, but not take away freedom of choice. And I think that's a very important principle to highlight. I, I really love that term choice architect. Um, I, I actually, it's, it's, I haven't, I've heard of choice architecture, but that, that idea of a choice architect, you, you know, another, another point that I think is important to make up front here is, and, and I'm curious as to what you think about this being an expert in this field, but it's, it seems to me as I've uh, been in healthcare in, uh, particularly uh, been very, very involved in uh, quality improvement and process improvement and, 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 and uh, carry design. Um, the, we used to, and we, and I would, I would say it still is the vast majority of us in, in the healthcare field. When we try to help people change their behaviors to healthful behaviors, the major tools we use are still around. We believe that if we just inform people, if we just let them know this is right and this is wrong, here's what you can do to be healthy. Here's what you should do to, to stay away from unhealthful behavior. So it's that kind of educational tool, if you will, informing and educating. Another big tool um, is sort of um, comes from this whole kind of psychological uh, field of uh, motivational interviewing. So trying to find out what's important to me. 
And if you find out what's important to me, you'll be able to, uh, in a sense, motivate me to do that. And, and again, I, I think those major um, mechanisms, and then of course there's reporting and feedback and things like that, but the major mechanisms deriving from the psychoeducational school uh, to me, ha- have not borne fruit. I mean, I think it's better than nothing, but you know, I don't think letting people know this is the right thing, this is the wrong thing, reminding them, scaring them about it, trying to motivate them or influence them or manipulate them. I, I think that that sort of legacy approach just doesn't seem to be bearing fruit. I mean, we're we're not seeing the kind of behavior change or n- not even close to it that we desire. And what's exciting about the field you're in and and you've been developing with your colleagues is that it's a different approach and it kind of reframes the whole idea. Um, As you're saying, it kind of changes the choice architecture and, 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 and helps people make decisions, knowing how people make decisions, knowing the science and the neuroscience and the, and the microeconomics of it. It it just, it just is a different thing. So what's your take on that? Yeah, no, I, I think that that's all true. There's, been a reliance on information provision by clinicians and a lot of public health agencies like the CDC for decades. And it's interesting when you look at statistics like the percentage of upper respiratory infections where an antibiotic is prescribed, I should note for the non-clinicians in the audience, upper respiratory infections overwhelmingly are not caused by bacterial infections. Uh, Typically, the percentage of those visits where a patient emerges with an antibiotic prescription is like 70, 80%. And that hasn't changed over the last couple of decades, despite lots of efforts by the CDC to push out information about why that's a bad idea. And obviously, clinicians know that antibiotics don't help treat viral infections. So I think there's lots of evidence that pushing out information while necessary often isn't sufficient to change behavior. And we do feel that some of the other types of approaches that behavioral economists are using have much more potential traction in terms of making it easier for people to make decisions that are more consistent with their own long-term self-interest. Well, you know, it's interesting you use that example. I don't know if you saw this, but there was a an article that, and this, for the folks who are listening, this just tells you how timely and how important this topic is. There was an article that literally just came out, I think it was five days ago, last week, uh, in the Harvard Business Review. Uh, it, it was not authored by Dr. Kevin Volt, but it was authored by a couple other folks, and it's called The Best Flu Prevention Might Be Behavioral Economics. And in that article, they talk both about using behavioral economics uh, to improve uh, uh, flu vaccinations, as well as to decrease the inappropriate prescribing of antibiotics, as you were just referring to. Both problems, again, we, we've just been using information uh, to, to, to try to do it. And it's, as you're, as you're pointing out, it really hasn't budged the needle. So, um, so it's just interesting. But did you see that article? No, I actually didn't, but it sounds interesting. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it, I mean, you can look it up easily enough and I, I'm happy to send it to you. Uh, you know, uh, I will, I will share this with you on a more personal note. My, my wife is an infectious disease physician and actually is a, sort of a leading expert in antimicrobial stewardship uh, on the national level is working with the CDC and others. And, um, so, uh, I, I haven't yet, uh, you know, mentioned this to her, but, um, I mean, she, she and everyone else is trying to right size the use of antibiotics. And we know it's not just the fact that you're giving antibiotics unnecessarily, but, uh, what that leads to obviously is not just the cost and, 
and the, um, the danger of taking antibiotics inappropriately, but also the uh, resistance uh, to uh, to microbes that it causes. And now we get these super resistant bugs that just are difficult to treat. And so that's a that's a, it's a pretty serious topic. Have you have you let's let's move into some examples and. Uh, of, of how you and your colleagues have used behavioral economics to uh, to improve healthcare. Um, you may have, I, I'm sure you have ones that you'd like to talk about. One in particular, one area that you you've created, and some projects that have come out of it um, are your you you have a, something called a nudge unit, N U D G E. Uh, pen medicine nudge unit, which uh, I understand is the first of its kind in an academic institution. Um, and and I, I, out of that nudge unit, and you've, you've done some interesting work around um, helping people take medications, uh, helping doctors avoid uh, things like uh, giving inappropriate antibiotics or ordering uh, radiology tests inappropriately. I, I just, I'm just wondering if you could dive in and give us an example of an initiative or a project where, where you've used behavioral economics to help physicians or patients make better decisions. Sure. Well, as, as you mentioned, Zev, the, the Center for Health Incentives Behavioral Economics, or CHIBE, at Penn has been around for nearly 10 years. And over the years, we've realized there's a lot of opportunity to really influence what's happening in clinical delivery much more systematically than has heretofore been done. So the Penn Medicine Nudge Unit is actually, as far as we know, the world's first clinical health system-based nudge unit. And what, in essence, we're trying to do, and this is led by my colleague, Mitesh Patel, it's a sort of a joint initiative between CHIBE and the Penn Medicine Center for Healthcare Innovation, is to really think systematically and elicit from clinicians ways to try to improve how they do things. And let me, let me give you a couple of examples. So one of our early examples was around the seemingly vexing problem of getting clinicians to prescribe generics instead of brands. And you know, as, as many of you know, uh, there's pretty good data that by and large generics are just as effective as brands. They're a lot cheaper. They're probably better for patients to take because they're less expensive, so they tend to be more adherent. And yet it's very hard to change prescribing habits. And we tried at Penn Medicine for a number of years. We're not that effective. And then we started looking into this, and we found that, I think, inadvertently, brands have been set up as the default in the electronic order entry system. So when a clinician clicked in to order a medication, the medicine that would come up was typically a brand. Clinicians aren't opposed to prescribing generics, but they're also not going to take the time to go through a long list of medicines and figure out which is the generic and prescribe that uh, based on you know, admonitions, you should prescribe more generics. They're obviously busy and they're making hundreds of decisions a day, and that, that's not, it's not fair to expect that to be a priority. But what we convinced the IT people to do is change the default to generics. So generics would appear first, uh, but as we talked about earlier with libertarian paternalism, leaving open the option for clinicians to override the default and pick a brand if they thought that would be clinically appropriate. And what happened was quite interesting because overnight the generic prescribing rate went from about 20 to 60% for different medicines to almost universally about 99%. The one exception was Synthroid, a medicine for which the generic 
form formulations tend to have widely differing bioavailability, uh, meaning that if a clinician had a patient with difficult to control hypothyroidism on a stable dose, appropriately, a number of them were overriding the default. So I think it was a nice example of where we were able to change the choice architecture and make it easier for providers to prescribe generics. And there's an interesting postscript to this because this happened about two and a half years ago, and we still find that the generic prescribing rate is about 99%. It's now saved Penn Medicine uh, an, an estimated $32 million to make this switch. And I think the key reason this was so sticky is that we basically made the path of least resistance the easiest path for clinicians to prescribe a generic. And I think that's that's a key principle to bring out, too. To the extent we can, uh, it's good if we can make the desired alternative the easiest alternative. And that, of course, is going to be much more sustainable. That, that's a, a I, I love the way you said that. That really makes a lot of sense to make it's to make the right choice or the better choice, the easier choice. Um, and this whole concept, I really could see how you, you know, how choice architecture works. There's another, uh, I think another initiative that came out of, uh, this nudge unit and, and the Chive Center around getting patients out of bed sooner in the hospital. And, and we know that's a good thing for patients, um, for many, many reasons. Do you recall that study or that initiative? Well, there's a lot of ongoing work in that area. It's as, you know, I think, Many of, many of our listeners will recognize this is a very common problem. You have patients who walk into the hospital, they're admitted, uh, the clinical staff is nervous about people falling, not inappropriately, uh, and so patients either think they're supposed to stay in bed or, in fact, are told to stay in bed uh, and not to get up without assistance, and then they stay in bed and don't move much for five to seven days, and in elderly people... Uh, there can be a lot of debilitation that happens pretty quickly, and now suddenly they can't walk out of the hospital and they need to go to a rehab facility. So getting patients mobilized early is very important if it can be done safely. It's, it's obviously good in terms of increasing the likelihood people can walk out of the hospital and go home, but it's also good in reducing the likelihood of various other respiratory and other complications. So uh, Ryan Grayson, who runs our hospital medicine program at Penn and, and Mitesh Patel, have been working on this through a variety of different studies, uh, trying to, you know, in essence, change some of the default order sets so that when patients come in, they are uh, given instructions to ambulate and ambulate a certain amount. And they even have uh, posters in, in the rooms of some, some of the patient rooms basically laying out different uh, choice alternatives, which involve getting out of bed several times a day and encouraging people to walk and really trying to reframe uh, what is the social norm in terms of desired behavior. Uh, so I think that that's a very important initiative, one which I hope we'll see a lot more of because I think this is a, a pretty pervasive problem that contributes to a fair amount of debilitation in, in, in hospitalized patients. Mm -hmm. I, I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but there's another one which I, as I was looking through uh, some of the literature and studies, in terms of we know that uh, uh, we overutilize and overorder physicians and other providers overorder radiology tests, whether they be 
you know, x-rays or CAT scans or MRIs or, or sonograms. These are expensive. Um, and often if you order it unnecessarily, you might find something that's incidental, which, uh, forces you to do other things unnecessarily. And so it's tremendous cost and, and actually poses some, some risk for patients. So, um, usually again, we use very, very typical things of trying to instruct doctors, you know, whether it be, um, uh, the choose wisely campaign of the American board of internal medicine, where you tell doctors, okay, don't order, you know, an MRI when there's back lower back pain, unless these signs are there. But again, very, very difficult to change behavior. Um, have you used behavioral economics, uh, in that realm as well to help physicians make the right choice or make it easier to make the right choice around radiology imaging, uh, ordering? Yeah. So this is an interesting example because it, it's, it's a bit different than, let's say getting page, uh, providers to prescribe generics at higher rates. There's no economic reason why that's bad for a health system. And in fact, it's probably good in a fixed reimbursement environment like DRGs to prescribe generics at higher rates. But if you think about radiology services, particularly in outpatient settings, they produce an enormous amount of revenue for health systems. And so it's, it's in some sense, if there's over-prescribing, that's a harder problem to fix. But we found that in that context, we, we had a sort of open competition that was part of the nudge unit for clinicians to come forward and have ideas for how behavioral economics could be used to reduce uh, inappropriate utilization, improve value. And, and one of the groups that came forward was a group led by Justin Beckelman, who's one of our radiation oncologists. And he recognized that that clinicians were basically prescribing too many CAT scans, in particular for patients getting palliative radiation. And again, I I think perhaps inadvertently, the order entry set had been set, so the default was to do a, a CAT scan actually every day. Uh, and it turns out that's not really supported by the literature. And to their credit, when this was pointed out to the leadership of the department, uh, they agreed to change the default and remove that as a part of the daily order entry set. And the percentage of patients who got these daily CT scans, it dropped considerably from about 80% to about 40%. Uh, that's that's, I think, still an evolving process in terms of working on that initiative. And there are some cases in which apparently clinically it does make sense, but it's obviously a minority and probably a small minority for whom that should be true. So I was glad to see that even in a case like that where it meant reduced revenues, uh, the clinical leadership and the clinicians stepped forward and and put in place a, an application of behavioral economics that I think really was the right the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. There was um, there were so many really exciting uh, studies and initiatives I, I I read through in preparing for this interview. There was one around uh, payment transformation in Hawaii, where you were able to uh, transition physicians from being incentivized incentivized for volume, you know, fee for service volume, to really being incentivized to uh, to uh, deliver uh, quality care uh, and value care over volume care. Um, is that something you could speak to? Sure. Well, the, the empirical work evaluating that is, is just now in process. So I can't tell you what the results are, but I can tell you a bit about how this came to be and, and how we thought through this. 
So this is work that I jointly led with my colleagues Amal Navat and Zeke Emanuel at Penn. And it was an interesting process because the CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Hawaii uh, basically decided he wanted as part of his legacy that he helped to do away with fee-for-service. He took on the unsustainable 6% growth rate of healthcare costs in the state, which of course is several percentage points greater than the cost of growth of inflation and the economy, and moved to a value-based payment system starting with primary care. So the Blues Plan, Hawaii Medical Services Agency, HMSA, asked us to help them design a new primary care payment system. And in essence, what we did is we took what was a fairly standard approach using fee-for-service. Uh, this is what they had prior to us getting involved. Fee-for-service, a patient-centered medical home with some incentives for quality, uh, and basically turned that into a system where each patient was assigned to a, a primary care doctor. And then for each attributed patient, there is a risk-adjusted capitated payment rate uh, for each patient for each month. And then that was about 80% of the base pay for primary care doctors. Then there was 20% that was put into a loss frame around so-called engagement incentives. And these were all basic things that the system needed to work. So 24-7 access to patients for emergency medical help, uh, engagement with the health plan, looking at the, their data, you know, things like that. And it was intended that providers would actually get that full 20%, but since those items were important, uh, we, we put those at risk. Uh, and then we had a greatly simplified set of quality measures. So one of the challenges in many pay-for-performance type initiatives is there's 50, 60 quality measures that are, are in play, and maybe it only affects 5% of your income. So not surprisingly, a lot of those initiatives don't work very well because there's a very small amount of money at stake for each one. And in this case, we really tried to narrow down to a much smaller set of clinical measures, more like 16 measures. And then we also had incentives that were tied to improvement as opposed to attainment of high thresholds. That's often been a barrier to just focus on attainment of high thresholds if you have a, a population that doesn't perform very well, uh, because let's say you have a low SES population, it's very challenging. It's very discouraging for providers when there's an incentive around getting 80% of your patients to uh, get mammograms when you're at 20%, and it, it seems like too big a hill to climb. So we, we really focus on performance improvement and then we also have some incentives around reducing the rate of increase in healthcare costs at the physician organization level. So an interesting package of, of new initiatives. Uh, we also did some testing as part of this around uh, adding some social comparisons so I could see how I'm doing compared to other providers in my group and also around testing the use of a patient incentive around improving glycemic control for patients with poorly controlled diabetes. A lot of providers will say, you know, it's very frustrating that I'm doing my best, but my patient isn't doing their part. And so we wanted to test the incremental value uh, of adding a patient incentive in an area like diabetes control, where both provider and patient engagement are clearly important. That's great. Wow. I'm, I'm excited to hear how that work goes. When, when will you start having results or have you already seen some results? Um, pretty soon. We, we, 
we have the data and we're just in the process of analyzing the data. So to their credit, uh, HMSA agreed to do the pilot testing of this as a randomized trial. So we actually had a three-arm trial where we had the new payment model, the new payment model plus social comparisons, the new payment model plus social comparisons, and the patient incentive. So we'll have a much better sense of the comparative effectiveness of those approaches once once those data are all in. So, so Kevin, if I were going to ask you, of, of all the projects and initiatives that you've either led or, or been part of, um, what, what could you pick one that gives uh, you know a, ve- a very good sense, illustrates um, a mechanism of behavioral economics like uh, uh, you know a choice architecture, like the like the default or uh, what's one of your favorites that you know really paints the picture of what this can do in terms of improving health care and health outcomes? Yeah, well, I guess two of the initiatives that are related that we're most proud of are, are the work we've done with smoking cessation and financial incentives that have led to benefit design changes at a, at a number of large employers in the U.S. And specifically, we did a, a study among GE employees a number of years ago where we tested the use of a $750 financial incentive. It was tied to enrollment in a smoking cessation program, short-term cessation, and long-term cessation. And in essence, we found that we were able to triple long-term smoking cessation rates from about 5% to 14.7% at a year. And based on what we did, GE changed their benefit design for all 152,000 employees in the U.S. the following year. We followed that up with a study among employees at CVS, and we pushed further on this concept of trying to leverage a behavioral economic concept called loss aversion. And the basic idea is that people feel a much worse about losing money then they feel good about winning an equivalent amount of money. And the ratio typically is about two to one in terms of the disutility of a dollar lost versus utility of a dollar gained. And what we did there is we gave people the opportunity to put uh, up to $150 of their own money at risk. And if they did, we would match it roughly four to one. So they would have $800 that they would lose if they weren't successful in quitting smoking and that was one arm of the trial. And another arm was you could win up to $800 if you were successful in quitting smoking. We actually found some interesting results here, which is that the $800 reward was more effective than having the money at risk. But what was buried within that is this interesting juxtaposition of the fact that people who are willing to put their own money at risk did phenomenally well. So in the standard reward approach, we had a very similar result to what we had at GE, roughly a a tripling of smoking cessation rates long term. But in the in the group that put their own money at risk, uh, instead of about 12 to 15 percent of people quitting, we had 52 percent of people quitting. But the rub there was only about 16 percent of people were willing to put their money down. So it highlights, I think both some of the promise of behavioral economic approaches and one of the limitations, which is that it's sometimes hard to get people to engage in, in, in approaches that might be quite effective. 
So the postscript there is also very interesting. We had tested this $150 of your money, which we matched roughly four to one. And CVS was very intrigued by the 52% of those people quitting number. So they basically said, let's try something slightly different. Let's lower the barrier to participation and have people put $50 down. We will match that 14 to one. So they coined this new program, 700 Good Reasons to Quit. They rolled this out to more than 200,000 employees. Uh, and we're now just evaluating the data, looking at what happened with ongoing engagement and quit rates, and we're very eager to see what that showed. That's a, that's a really creative project. I, I'm, I'm definitely waiting to hear how that turns out. Um, so it's really combining both, right? It's the, it's the loss aversion and, uh, as well as the opportunity to gain. Is that, is that right? Yeah. No, I think that's right. So it's, it's a combination of, um, giving people the opportunity to sort of harness loss aversion, but also the, the anticipated regret they might feel if they lose something they feel like they could have won. Got it. Got it. That's great. You know, there's an, another uh, behavioral economic uh, lever uh, or mechanism uh, that I, I've uh, heard or read that you, you all, actually both, that you are using, which is this idea that if, if, if I know someone's looking at me, if there's some sort of social uh, awareness of what I'm doing, um, that changes my behavior. And I'm not sure, I forget what that's called, but have you, is there an example of a project or initiative you use that mechanism with or in? Yeah, probably the, the best example of that is, is some work that one of our peers did, uh, Jason Doctor, USC, along with Craig Fox at UCLA and uh, a team of other investigators at Northwestern and the Brigham. And they took on that challenge I alluded to earlier of inappropriate antibiotic prescribing for upper respiratory infections. And they basically found that giving providers feedback about their antibiotic prescribing rates compared to the best performing providers really dropped the antibiotic prescribing rates in those conditions. It actually dropped it uh, pretty close to zero while the intervention was still going. And, and I think that's a very powerful demonstration of how these social comparisons are very potent, particularly in settings in which people really care about what their peers think of them. Uh, you know, you, you can see why in a case like that, that type of approach could be very effective and I think probably more effective than a, a financial incentive approach would have been, uh, certainly more cost effective. So, so just to break that down a little bit. So what, if I was a physician in, in, in that, in that group and, uh, so I would see what I would see my, uh, appropriate prescribing, uh, percentage compared to the best doctor and, and would that be known to others or is that just information I would have? Yeah. So there are different ways to do that. I, I believe in that study, they gave the information to each physician about themselves and how they compared to the best performing. They did not identify everyone by name and share that with the whole group. That is another approach one could use, which which might be both more off-putting and more potent. Uh, so I think in many of these cases, there are these potential trade-offs where you can have a stronger intervention that might or might not be more effective because you might also have this sort of offsetting um, backlash from, from doing this initiative. 
I think if you if you if you consider this particular context, but think about how more broadly this could be applied, I think it'd be hard for providers to be upset about getting feedback about how they did compared to the best performing. Now there are always will be reasons why providers might say, well, my patients are different than other patients, and you haven't accounted for that. But but in this case, you know, where we're talking about upper respiratory infections. Then, then I think it's harder to do that. It's, 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 it would be more of an issue, let's say, if we're comparing outcomes and then there are all these issues about risk adjustment. But when we're talking about upper respiratory infections and antibiotic prescribing, I think it's a little harder for providers to fall back on that. And that might be why it was so effective. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, I, I just have to, you know, remind us all. I mean, the stuff you're, you're, you're using behavioral economics with to change and improve. I mean, this is life-saving stuff. You know, smoking cessation. Uh, I know you've done some work in screenings like cancer screenings, uh, colorectal screenings, um, uh, you know, appropriate prescribing, uh, appropriate imaging. Um, this stuff is both, uh, in terms of improving outcomes of care and also saving money, both which are critically important right now. Um, so it's, it's, and this is, this is really core to what we're trying to do in healthcare. Let me ask you a question about that, actually. If you, if, 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 I guess my question is this, what, what, what do you think the major challenges are to, to really implementing, deploying behavioral economics? I mean, I, you know, I hear you speak and, and again, I get very excited every time I hear you speak. I, you know, why aren't we doing more of this? And, and the second part of that question is if we did do more of this, how, how would you reimagine what healthcare would look like? I mean, how would healthcare be different than it is now if we could deploy behavioral economics and have it be successful? Well, let me first maybe highlight a few challenges and then, you know, then we can sort of try to imagine what things might be like if we were successful at doing this more broadly. So, I think the first challenge we find is inertia. You know, people are used to doing things a certain way. They presumably think in general like they're doing a pretty good job or the the best they can. And a lot of times people both find it threatening that they're being asked to do things differently. And it's not always a priority uh, to try to rethink how they're doing things unless they're really pushed to. So, you know, it's always the sort of immediacy crowding out the the importance potentially of doing things differently. I think a second reason, a uh, second challenge, are that in some cases there are these perverse incentives to that keep us doing things the way we do them. So a lot of unnecessary imaging, for example, which gets reimbursed and can be quite lucrative. And there's, uh, you know, some interesting uh, actually, a very interesting New York Times op-ed was written by my uh, friends and colleagues, George Lowenstein and Peter Eubel, a number of years ago, where they talked about the, the issue that behavioral economics, you know, in essence, can't correct for poorly designed incentives. So let's say we're trying to reduce obesity. There are things that behavioral economists could do to try to help. But as long as we have subsidies for for corn production and high fructose corn syrup containing food items are cheaper than they should be on the market, then you're fighting an uphill battle. And I think it's some of the same issues when we think about uh, the fee-for-service reimbursement system, which pays just as much for low-value care as high-value care. You know, there's only so much behavioral economics can do to offset that uh, as long as the 
the main payment drivers are what they are. Uh, and then a third issue, which is a challenge, is this question of coming back to the concept of libertarian paternalism is when does a, a nudge become a shove? You know, when do providers feel like you're pushing them too hard? I know how to practice medicine. Uh, don't tell me what to do. Uh, you know, and, and that, of course, also is true of patients where they, you know, it's a it's a very strongly held belief in this country, uh, which is a good thing, that we have freedom of choice about all sorts of things. And that also includes, uh, for better or worse, freedom of choice to make, quote unquote, bad decisions. But there's lots of issues or lots of questions about, you know, who defines what's a good decision, what's a bad decision uh, and what the, quote unquote, preferred path is. And so I think if it if it's a provider trying to help a patient improve their health, being some somewhat paternalistic in that context is appropriate. But if it were your employer or your health plan telling you what to do, uh, that might not be so well received. So I think there's some interesting challenges there trying to figure out where are the boundaries around uh, helpful nudging and uh, and being overly intrusive or overly pushy. So I think those are some of the challenges. Uh, maybe let me pause there and then and then we could talk more if you'd like about what a future state might look like. You know, that's really, really helpful. You know, I think to, 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 to move you forward on this, uh, there was an article which you published just last month, March of 2018 in JAMA Cardiology called Mass Customization for Population Health. And you said, you know, even, even if we get past, if we switch from a fee-for-service volume-driven incentive or payment to, uh, to one that is value-based, um, there still is the uh, need uh, we're not out of the woods yet because uh, because you still need uh, to have innovation in this area. And maybe you were talking about behavioral economic innovation. We need to help uh, the system and physicians and providers move from a focus on treating disease to uh, being better at uh, prevention and improving health. And so is is that where, you know, I'm curious about that. What, what, what do you mean by that? What would that look like? Yeah, well, it's an interesting interesting set of issues. So if you look at how we spend money in the U.S., both in terms of treating disease and in the kind of research that's predominantly funded by entities like NIH, it's mostly around developing new drugs, treating disease, and obviously that's all really important. But if you step back and you recognize that the U.S. spends a lot more than any other country in the world on health services, yet we rank 26th in life expectancy uh, when we compare ourselves with countries in Europe and Japan and Australia and, and, and other relatively wealthy countries, it's hard to feel that we're getting good value for the money we're spending on health. And I think we need to really reconsider our resource allocation efforts, because if all these investments in biomedical research and the $3 trillion a year we're spending on health services result in us ranking 26th in life expectancy, despite spending a lot more than anyone else, it would seem like there must be a better way to allocate some of these resources so that you know, we're at least in the top 10 in life expectancy we should be number one, given that we spend so much more than anyone else. But I, I, that's the kind of investments or rethinking that 
that I think is really called for, uh, trying to figure out how do we re reallocate resources in such a way that we have commensurate improvements in health. And I think, you know, having read your article, what I came away with it was that you were saying, I think, that we, we, we actually have some great treatments that we know work. The problem is that, you know, uh, uh, maybe we should devote instead of, you know, uh, well, not instead of, but in addition to continuing to get better treatments and more treatments, if we could really get those treatments that we know work to uh, and deploy them effectively. So, for instance, even taking medications uh, uh, for uh, to prevent heart disease or prevent stroke, uh, lowering high blood pressure, uh, cholesterol, those sorts of things. Get people, instead of taking them 40, 50% of the time, getting to 80, 90% of the time, you, you, I mean, the, the, the literature tells us that we, we would save tremendous number of lives, prevent tremendous numbers of bad outcomes like strokes and heart attacks and, and, and whatnot. And so it's, it's more of let's, let's actually put some money and resource into, into helping people make those right decisions. And I think, you know, I think behavioral economics is, in fact, uh, a very powerful way to do that. And so that's what I came away with. Is that the point you were trying to make in that article? Yeah, no, that, those are very important points. And I'm, I'm glad that came across. You know, we spend an enormous amount of money, billions of dollars developing these new medications. And it's remarkable that in particular, when it comes to reducing the risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease to cause of heart attacks and many strokes, and the leading cause of mortality in the U.S., that despite lots of clinical trials that show unambiguously huge benefits of those medications, that adherence rates in practice to those medications once prescribed by people's physicians tend to be only 40 to 45 percent, even in the year following a heart attack. So this is in the setting of having a life-threatening event, uh, and the best our system seems to do among insured patients tends to be in this sort of 40 to 45% range. So clearly there's a lot of opportunity to do much better. And, and the key point is we should really be sort of investing in efforts to figure that out. You know, it can be a mixture of through behavioral science or health systems research, but it's, it's a real lost opportunity if we just then spend our resources developing the next drug that people will be adherent to 40 to 45% of the time instead of figuring out how do we make this work better for people so that uh, people can realize the clinical benefits that are possible from actually using these medications. So, so let, me, let me ask you this, go back to this question. So if we got past the fee-for-service you know, incentive for volume, and if there was more investment in, uh, in behavioral economics, what would healthcare look like? Well, I think a lot of you know, a lot of, of medicine historically has been built around the reimbursement system. So a lot of it is based on face-to-face -face encounters where providers get paid for each encounter where they see a patient. And it's interesting when you look at some of the other systems that are out there, like Kaiser Group Health, there's a much higher percentage of virtual visits. And I think that very much fits with uh, the advances in technology, which now enable lots of ways to communicate with patients, even asynchronously, in ways that are both more convenient for the patient and probably just as effective in many cases and also lower cost. So I think as the reimbursement system shifts, uh, that will continue to advance. And 
Uh, we actually wrote an article recently in the Harvard Business Review, uh, which was in essence about the notion that in the future, face-to-face visits with the provider might be seen as a failure of sorts of what could be provided as an outpatient. So you could think about a whole variety of different types of wireless monitoring devices. So if I'm a patient with Parkinson's, I could monitor my movement. If I'm a patient with diabetes, they would monitor my blood sugar. And there could be a lot of very sophisticated artificial intelligence that then develops algorithms that basically give me clinically-based evidence-based guidelines on what to do if I have a sugar that has a certain pattern. And then there would be a a process of exception handling whereby a nurse practitioner might intersect with me occasionally remotely based on how things are going. And I would really only need to see a doctor perhaps in settings where uh, that wasn't sufficient. So you can imagine that there's a lot of engagement strategies that would be needed for all this to work, which is where I think behavioral economics would come in. But a lot of of what we could do might be actually much more effective at, at managing people's chronic diseases and certainly from a cost standpoint could be much more efficient than the current visit-based model. Yeah, so this is really a shift. This is really, um, and I I, I saw an article you you published just a few months ago in October of 2017 in the Annals of Internal Medicine, Technology and Medicine, Reimagining Provider Visits as the New Tertiary Care, where it's really reframing the virtual visit. So it's not the doctor getting on the phone or on Skype or something or, you know, uh, e-visits, because that's basically the same thing, the doctor's time or the provider's time what you're saying is let's use virtual in a different way where we start to really allow uh, the machinery to uh, create the engagement, have the rules there in place so it becomes automated. Um, and, and again, because it's automated, you can build in a very, very uh, reliable uh, standardized approaches based on the, the evidence. And um, uh, so it's a really, really cool picture. That That's very much the, the vision which- uh, David Ash and Christian Turvis, two colleagues of mine at Penn Medicine Warden that we tried to sketch out. Yeah, I, I love it. I, and I would love to talk to you about it some more because I completely agree with you. It's, it's, um, to use virtual care to do the same thing is, is, has some benefit, but it's falls far short of, uh, as you point out and your colleagues point out, of what, of what we really can do in terms of improving care and improving convenience, improving customer service and, and, and also lowering costs. One last question. I know you got to run. Um, you know, I have to think, and, and this is a, something I've observed. We, I think many of us think that the future is going to be the solution. The savior of healthcare is going to be dig tech, uh, digitalization and, you know, the Fitbits and things like that. And my observation of this over the past few years, and I think the literature bears this is that the tools themselves are not the solution. It's what the tools can offer. They're a channel for solution. And it seems to me that behavioral economics, the tools of choice architecture, if you if you don't embed that in these toys, the toys will in and of themselves will not really do the work we wanted to do in terms of solving the problems of healthcare. And so as I you know, you look at the tens of billions of dollars that are spent each year in digital tech, you know, these venture capital, the money that's going into it, the Apples, the Googles, the Amazons, the Intels, the IBMs, the Microsofts, uh there these are multi multi billion dollar organizations that are all clamoring to get into healthcare they're all getting into healthcare and you know yes they've got amazing uh, technology and infrastructure to bring to bear 
But I, I have to think that they want behavioral economics because they want that choice architecture and they want to know that. So I have to think that you and your colleagues, uh, both at Penn and across the country, are being tapped by these giants um, to help them really uh, use their channels most effectively uh, to create the type of behavior that uh, hopefully helpful behaviors. But, um, you know, can you share some of that? Are you being are you being uh, you know, are they knocking at your door? Yeah, no, we, we work with a number of digital health companies. And as you point out, I think for them, there's a very important element of the choices that patients will or won't make uh, that are, are going to be an important part of any solutions they develop. And another important issue is, of course, related to the issues of patient engagement. A lot of the early users of digital health devices have been quantified self kind of people who seek out new technologies, spend their own money buying them, but who would be pretty healthy and pretty engaged regardless. And the big challenge here and the big opportunity is trying to figure out how do you use these new technologies in such a way that you can get people who are less engaged with their health to be more engaged and more successful in, in managing their their ongoing health problems or their future health problems. So lots of interesting opportunities in that space, uh, lots of challenges, of course, but definitely a sense of excitement that some of these technologies could enable some of the uh, technology-enabled improvements in productivity that have been seen in other industries that we haven't to date really seen in healthcare because we haven't really replaced labor inputs. So I think a lot of this depends on whether the vision that David Ash and Christian Turvish and I sketched out in the Annals of Internal Medicine and the HBR articles, you know, whether that comes to fruition and how successful companies are at navigating mm. that. Well, uh, you know, again, uh, Kevin, I, I just want to thank you. I know that you've got to run and you've been generous with your time and, and just Again, it, it is so inspiring. I, I have so many more things I want to ask you. I can't believe I didn't get to the questions I wanted to get to. Um, I hope we have an opportunity to speak again and maybe even uh, do another podcast interview to get together. Um, it, it's just, it's great. So I just can't say enough about the work you're doing. I, I think it is, again, I, I really mean this. If I look at the future of healthcare and, uh, you know, in terms of a number of very, very core strategies that we need to really get better at, uh, better understand, and deploy more. I, I think it's the work that you're doing, which is critical. And it is, I think it's it's just not resourced enough uh, and not deployed enough. So uh, anything I can do to support you, I'd, I'd love to. I just, I, I love the work you're doing. I think it's so important for patients and for providers. Well, Zev, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this, this and other conversations with you. Happy to talk more anytime. And thank you for your interest in our work. And, and, and Kevin, what I do at the end every 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 episode, I have to turn to the uh, to the audience, and I just want to again thank the those of you out there who are providers of care or supporting providers of care. You're doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients, and this is where the rubber meets the road. So I just want to recognize you and thank you, and also thank you for listening today to this interview. So until next time, be well. And again, Kevin, thank you so much. Thank you, Zeph.